Thursday Biography Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira, and this is a podcast which shines a spotlight on a person who was born on this day, at some point in history, somewhere in the world, and made a positive lasting impact. Today, June 28th, we're going to talk about the couturier who dressed Hollywood, Zelda Wynn Valdez. What do Oprah, Cher, Beyonce, and Zelda all have in common? They all achieved such a level of notoriety and fame in their time that they were elevated to single-name status. Zelda, in her peak, was so famous that her store bore only her first name. Anyone in the know knew Zelda, and anyone who was anyone had at least one custom Zelda gown in their closet. Now, a few sources describe Zelda as being the woman who dressed Black Hollywood, and indeed that is true, true enough that I even used that caption on our Instagram post today, but she didn't just dress Black Hollywood. She dressed anyone who was anyone. Zelda dressed Joyce, the Black Bombshell, Bryant, another of our Humans in History that we chatted about on October 14th. She dressed Gladys Knight, Dorothy Dandridge, and Ella Fitzgerald, among many others. And whether it was the lithe, athletic dancer's body of Josephine Baker or the full, rich curves of Mae West, Zelda's gift for design was so extraordinary that she could see a woman's photo in a newspaper and make her a stunning, perfectly fitted dress just based on that picture. Indeed, when she was designing for Ella Fitzgerald, whose whirlwind schedule kept her too busy to come in for fittings, she would simply send word to Zelda that she needed several dresses in a few days, and it would be up to Zelda to scour the magazines and papers for the most recent photos of Ella because her weight tended to fluctuate a little bit. And she would have to rapidly turn out this unique couture for Ella based on those photos. And she always paid super close attention to the intricate beading and the appliques that Ella really liked to wear when she was performing. In fact, Zelda told the New York Times in 1994 about her process with Ella, and she said, I only fit her once in 12 years. I had to do everything by imagination for her. So how did our Zelda get started? Like many of our humans in history, it was with pretty inauspicious roots. She was born Zelda Christian Barbour Valdez in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, about 13 miles north of the Mason-Dixon line. Her mother, Anne Barbour, was African-American, and her father, Jose Valdez, was Cuban, the two having met in Havana before relocating to the States. Even though Chambersburg was technically in the north, Chambersburg was brutalized pretty badly by three Confederate occupations during the Civil War. So there was a lot of leftover tension. Large sections of the city had been blown up or set on fire during the war. Black boys had been kidnapped and taken to the South as slaves. Houses had been set on fire with Black residents barricaded inside. And the houses of anyone who admitted to teaching Black kids were also set on fire. After the war, Confederate Lieutenant General Jubal Early was charged with war crimes for ordering the burning of the city, but he fled to Mexico. He lived disguised as a farmer for a little bit before escaping to Toronto, where he wrote wrote his memoirs about how lovely and wonderful the antebellum South was before the uppity Northerners tried to rescue the colored people. But thankfully, finally, he fell down a flight of stairs and died. But the South still insists on honoring this piece of crap with streets, ferries, and monuments named in his honor. Barf. Anyways, sorry about that. Enough about ugly white men. We're here to talk about gorgeous black ladies who dress other gorgeous ladies in gorgeous couture. 
So Zelda spends her childhood here, and being in the early 1900s, there was a stink of Jim Crow everywhere. She was the oldest of seven kids in the family, and as a child, she was fascinated by the seamstress who worked on her grandmother's dresses. And when she offered to make a dress for her grandmother, her grandmother laughed and told her that her body was too big and tall to ever look good in anything. But nothing ever stopped Zelda from doing anything she wanted to do, and she produced a dress that not only fit her grandmother, but looked great on her. She found that she really loved the art of couture, and she began to sew dresses and suits for everyone in her family, and she delighted everyone with this natural gift that she had. She was also a gifted pianist who studied music at her Catholic school, and by the time she was 13, she was a classically trained pianist and a couturier dressing her entire family. Right after she graduated high school in 1923, the family moved to White Plains, New York, and Zelda got a job working in her uncle's tailor shop. She was gifted beyond her years when it came to making and tailoring clothes, but being a black woman, the only step up from there was working as a stock girl in an upscale boutique. And this may have been where a lot of women of color might have gotten comfortable, but not Zelda. It's really hard to imagine the fortitude that it takes for someone to hack their way through an uncharted career field. In the 1930s and 40s, being a couturier was a title reserved for white people. Pierre Balmain, Hubert de Givenchy, Christian Douar, Coco Chanel, they all helped make France the fashion capital of the world, and it was emulated at home and on the screen. So whichever movies Zelda saw during these two decades, she would have had to witness some of the most incredible cinematic couture ever made. Whether she saw Adrian's work in The Women, or Edith Head's work in She Done Him Wrong, or Walter Plunkett's work in The Gay Divorcee, Zelda was looking at the couture of white people. Representation in the world of hot couture was non-existent. And while Zelda may not have consciously set out to crash that wall of ice, she did. It soon became clear to her boss at the boutique that she was way too overqualified to stock shelves, so she was promoted to clerk and then soon to tailor, making her the store's first black clerk and first black tailor. Word began to get around about her incredible skills, and her clientele began to build. And it got to a point that by 1935, she had her own dressmaking business on the side. Her style was one of excruciating attention to detail, paired with this sense of graceful glamour, and they worked together to make her clients basically look better than they ever had before. It was entirely feminine couture. She took exquisite materials like hammered satin and crepe and silk organza, and she made these individualized works of art, all touched off with her signature delicate hand sequining and hand beading. And she wasn't pigeonholed into just like cocktail dresses either. She could do wedding gowns. And she started to put on these fashion shows that she organized for black social clubs, and that kind of helped to spread her name even farther. And by 1948, she was able to open up her own boutique called Zelda Wynn on Broadway, making her the first black person to own a store on the avenue in Manhattan. The Wynn was a nod to the last name of her deceased husband, Charlie Wynn. They had married back in 1927, but he had died a few years later, leaving Zelda with nothing but his last name. A Black-owned boutique was a godsend for the Black women of New York who had all experienced some level of discrimination in the white-owned stores in town. They were finally able to shop without being accused of shoplifting, without being questioned about their ability to pay, and without having to navigate sales clerks who refused to wait on them. So the women of color and means flocked in droves. Edna Mae Robinson, wife of Sugar Ray Robinson, was a loyal client. But the event that really launched Zelda to international fame was the Nat King Cole wedding. So it was 1948, and Nat King Cole, crooner extraordinaire, was getting married to his second wife, singer Maria Hawkins. 
six days after the divorce was finalized from his first wife. So Maria wanted the best when it came to designing the bridal party couture, and she came to Zelda, who created the bride's famous blue ice dress, as the press called it. It was a cutting-edge, pale blue, off-the-shoulder silk creation that cost $700 back in 1948. That's about $8,000 today. The wedding was attended by 3,000 guests, including Bill Bojangles Robinson and Sarah Vaughn, who became a client of Zelda's after the wedding. Everyone who saw Maria's dress was gobsmacked, and the pictures were carried in newspapers and magazines around the country, so Zelda had officially arrived. Over the next few years, she would dress the creme de la creme of stage and screen and song. Mae West and Marlena Dietrich and Eartha Kitt and Sarah Vaughn and Josephine Baker and Marian Anderson, who is the first person of color to perform at the Met. Uh, Marian was also a human in history. I did a mini bio on her on our Instagram page back on February 27th. So all of these ladies flocked to Zelda for a -a one-of-a-kind piece, and they paid upwards of $11,000 in today's money for a dress. Zelda was in her element. As she said in an interview later, I have a God-given talent for making people beautiful. And that was the gospel truth. Zelda was a good businesswoman and a good couturier, not only because she listened to what women wanted, but because she was also not afraid to give her clients advice about clothing, which needless to say, she was never wrong about. In fact, Zelda was partly responsible for helping singer Joyce Bryant earn her nickname of the Black Bombshell, the Bronze Bombshell, and the Black Marilyn Monroe. While at their first fitting, Zelda mentioned to Joyce that her career could use a good boost of sex appeal. Joyce had the body of a goddess, and Zelda knew that clothing was the best way to make that work for Joyce. So she designed a couple gowns. One was made of white sequins and red chiffon. Another was a mermaid cut gown of pale pink chiffon. And both were so skin tight that Joyce couldn't sit down while wearing them. But these dresses did the trick and Joyce's career took off even faster than before. Being the altruistic community-minded woman that she was, Zelda helped form the National Association of Fashion and Accessories Designers in 1949. The organization was created to help black women designers who were struggling with the racism and social barriers and discriminatory practices blocking them from becoming successful businesswomen. By the late 1950s, Zelda was able to move her store to Midtown, adjacent to Carnegie Hall, renaming it Shea Zelda, and taking on a staff of nine dressmakers. The location, in addition to her high-profile clientele, helped to push her to the final level of exclusivity and stardom. So now we come to the most hotly contested jewel in Zelda's crown, the Playboy Bunny costume. So in the 1960s, Hugh Hefner befriended Zelda, and he brought up the possibility of creating a uniform for the cocktail waitresses at the Playboy Club. And this is where the story gets murky. So some sources say that Zelda was the creator of the Playboy Bunny costume, full stop. Some say that she improved upon a less satisfactory design. Others say that she submitted her ideas, which Hefner took into consideration, along with many other designers' ideas, before coming up with the now iconic outfit consisting of a satin corset, one-piece, off-the-shoulder, bathing suit-looking number, with a puffy tail and ears, and then some prototypes, cuffs, and a collar with a bow tie. Everyone knows this costume and the man behind it, but it's not clear that Zelda had a huge involvement, or any, in its creation. It's easy to see how that mistake could be made since she did know Hefner and he probably did talk costumes with her and the sexy form-fitting look was a signature of, of Zelda's. And it's an additionally murky story because the outfit went through so many generations and a lot of people had their hands involved in it. Design, especially for iconic pieces, isn't always cut and dry. 
We don't have to look much farther than another fashion icon and a contemporary of Zelda's, Miss Edith Head. Edith won eight Academy Awards for costume design, more than any other human ever has. Yet she didn't actually design a lot of the clothes that she won awards for. Edith won an Academy Award for Best Costuming for Roman Holiday, even though the costume that Audrey spends 90% of the movie in, the Capri uh, skirt and blouse combo, it was actually designed by a Prussian designer named Sonia de Lenart. But since the outfit was actually sewn in the temporary costume department that Edith was using while shooting in Rome, Edith took the credit and the award. Sounds awful, I know, but back then this was just common practice. And the same thing happened for the movie Sabrina. Audrey Hepburn spends most of the movie in outfits that she ostensibly bought in France, with the exception of the opening scene. Edith designed the outfit in the opening scene, and the rest of Audrey's fabulous couture was either picked off the rack at Givenchy's Atelier by the actress herself, or it was custom made for her by Givenchy. Edith was not about to share screen credit with this French upstart, and she got the awards and the credit. So what I'm getting at with this long, windy flashback is, you know, beside any excuse to talk about old Hollywood couture, is that it's not always cut and dry in terms of who actually made a dress or a costume. As far as we can tell, the Playboy Bunny outfit, according to Hefner, started in a place called Bunny's Tavern in Urbana, Illinois. It was run by a guy named Bernard Fitzsimmons, his nickname was Bunny, and he created these eponymous costumes for his waitresses. Hefner frequented the bar when he was a University of Illinois student and was enthralled by the ladies' attire. Many years later, Hefner would open up his own Playboy club, and the costumes were designed, at least at first, by the mother of a woman who was dating the co-founder of the club, Victor Lowens III. Victor's girlfriend was a Latvian immigrant named Ilsa Torines, and her mother was an accomplished seamstress. Her first design wasn't super well-received, but it went under a lot of tweaks, and French fashion designer René Blot was brought in to further modify it into the costume that we think of today when we think of the Playboy Bunny. Zelda may have been in that process somewhere for sure, but there's no concrete proof that she was, despite the fact that many, many sources claim that she was without citing any sort of material. But there is a lot of conflicting information about Zelda out there. Even one of her biographers got her place of birth wrong, saying that she was born in the Caribbean, even though her birth was recorded in the city of Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. But the Playboy Bunny costume, whether it was entirely, partly, or not at all her construct, was, in my opinion, small potatoes in terms of social significance to her next project in the 1960s, and that was bringing inclusivity and representation to the world of ballet couture. So in 1970, Arthur Mitchell, the first black dancer at the New York City Ballet and one of the most physically perfect human beings ever made, seriously, Google Arthur Mitchell, the man is like a statue, it's incredible. Um, so he came to Zelda and he asked if she would do costume design for the Dance Theater of Harlem. And when Zelda got started, she found a big issue that no one back then was considering a big issue, and that was that every dancer had to wear pink tights. And Zelda was like, mm, not on my watch. So she made tights in every possible skin shade, hand dyeing them to match the dancer's skin tone. This was a very important step towards embracing and showcasing diversity. Zelda would end up staying with the Dance Theater of Harlem and continue to design costumes for them until her death in 2001 at the age of 96. My sources today were Wikipedia, Shondaland, The New York Times, and Black Past. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating on Apple Podcast. It means the world to a totally homemade podcast. And if you're feeling social, you can follow Humans in History on Instagram at humans underscore in underscore history. 
Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Zelda Wynn Valdez. Please join me on July 1st when we talk about the father of infection control, Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis, the OBGYN who told surgeons to wash their hands after delivering babies and ended up being murdered for it. 